You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. Welcome to another episode of HEDEX. G'day, Martin. G'day, Carl. How are you? I'm well. We're in lockdown two, really, for us. I mean, I suppose we're locked down uh, in Sydney over the Christmas break, but um, it wasn't much of a lockdown, whereas this seems like it's um, it's setting in. Yeah, well, I, I made a, a trip to Melbourne last week, um, intended to be down there for five days, and then one day in had to make a, a mad rush back to Queensland to invo- avoid quarantine. We're all having to stay so nimble and on, light on our toes at the moment, aren't we? We are. I, I think uh, some of us are doing better than others. I feel like the Melbourne crowd and the, my Melbourne colleagues uh, have have got a pretty good handle on all of this. Well, it's. Um, I think we're all having to learn the hard way about how to make those adaptations. And my heart goes out and thoughts go out this week to lots of people in Sydney and Melbourne. And what's happening in Sydney this week in the higher education sector is interesting in that um, Monday of this week was the first day at work for Mark Scott as the new Vice Chancellor of University of Sydney. Who Who would have thought that he'd be back starting in lockdown like we were reflecting on some of the vice chancellors in Victoria almost a year ago now. That seems like a really big deal. I know there's lots of new appointments and I think we've talked before on the podcast about a variety of VCs um, turning over in this period. But this appointment in particular, uh, I'm finding interesting audiences talking about or unexpected audiences having a view on this. Um, as opposed to probably not really knowing or necessarily caring about some of the other VC appointments. Well, I think um, when the appointment announcement was made some months ago now, there was a lot of reaction to it because um, Mark's got a very different pedigree and route into being a university vice chancellor than most. Most most come into the academic world um, earlier than the vice chancellor <laughs> vice chancellor entry point and build up long standing academic careers. Mark, of course, is a managing director of the ABC and as a secretary of the New South Wales Department of Education. Quite different experiences. And um, yeah, the, there's been a lot of interest in it and it'll be very interesting to see how he goes. Well, I'm looking forward to having Mark Scott on the show. Yeah, well, it'll be great to, to have him as a guest. And the guest this week is Guy Littlefair from the Auckland University of Technology, where he's a PVC international and a dean of faculty. Guy is um, not coming in as a vice chancellor, but he similarly has had a journey of being a senior engineer in the business world and then flipping between that and, and an academic career. It seems that that's um, possibly going to become more common in the future. I'd imagine. I'd imagine that's something that we're going to see more of. It. I mentioned earlier that a variety of audiences have taken interest in Mark Scott's appointment, and that's sort of what I meant, that uh, some of the more mainstream business contacts and networks that I'm involved with um, have taken an interest in this and what that means for strategy in particular. So I think Guy is another good example of um, that sort of being perhaps the emerging norm. Well, you're saying that people in Sydney are taking notice of it. I, I couldn't help but read the press over the weekend seeing Mark in advance of his commencement at Sydney talk about the things that are going to be very important to him. He talked about partnerships being key, that individual universities can't do things alone. And he also talked about where competitors might come from, his reflections on his journey at the ABC being that um, competitors weren't always other broadcasters but came from other walks in life, sometimes even the customers and partners of, of, of the corporation. So 
I think we should expect some different ways of thinking with regard to competitors, partners from um, a University of Sydney in the future. And that's much of what Guy had to say with us. Great. Let's have a listen. Our guest today on HeadX is another friend from across the Tasman with previous Australian experience in Professor Guy Littlefair. Guy is Pro Vice-Chancellor International and Dean of Faculty at Auckland University of Technology, where he's been for almost five years now after having been Dean of Engineering and the PVC of Industry and Strategic Partnerships for more than six years at Deakin University. Guy, welcome to HeadX. Kia and thank you, Martin. It's uh, great to be here, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, me too. And um, I mean, one of the conversations that I might start off our conversation with that has been in an earlier um, episode of HeadX is one that you'll know about that we had with Jane Den Hollander. She was, of course, the Vice Chancellor when you were at Deakin. And I wonder if you might just get the ball rolling for us by telling us what it was like working with Jane and perhaps use that as a segue to what the highlights were of your academic leadership career here in Australia. Yeah, thanks, Martin. Um, You know, when I think about it, I was really, really fortunate to go to Deakin, and I was particularly fortunate to go there at the time that I did. Thinking about Jane, she fully supported me right from day one, and she just allowed me the flexibility to try different things, to test out ideas, and really try and do things differently. And when I was the Dean of Engineering there, a couple of big projects that we completed was a, a completely new curriculum, a contemporary curriculum design, very much around design and project-based learning, which was quite a step forward for the school and a step forward for the sector in many ways. And alongside that, I was responsible for delivering a new building for the engineering school. Now, you know, new buildings in universities go up all, all the time, or at least they used to go up all the time. But the way in which we configured it was it was very much around how we wanted to to deliver our curriculum and how we wanted to engage with our students and how we wanted our students to engage with the building. So we put students first and we very much put students at at the centre. When I was PVC for Industry and Strategic Partnerships under Jane, um, I brokered some fairly significant industry initiatives and big partnerships that went on to become even bigger and Probably the biggest was the work that I did, the preliminary work I did around what's now turned into the $30 million microgrid installation at uh, the Geelong Warm Ponds campus. So Jane offered me opportunities. She trusted me and I'm really grateful for that opportunity. And it certainly helped me get to where I am now. And then so a few pointers there to an issue that I might take the conversation towards in the recent um, podcast on HeadX have been touching on the theme of the increasing pressure on both leaders and academics in our sector. And Carl and I, in in hosting this podcast, have been commenting on the differences between academic life and working in business and professions. And I know that your journey has has embraced both of these worlds. So can you tell us a bit about that, how you see the two worlds as different and how easy you think it is to move between both academic and business life in, in a career these days? It's interesting, Martin, isn't it? When when we do look at the differences and how easy it is to to cross over between industry and academia. From my own perspective, you know, I've worked in the automotive sector and the manufacturing sector in the UK. I also worked for the Ministry of Defence in in London as a development engineer. And when I first arrived in Auckland, I worked for a marine electronics company here, and. That experience I had in industry really taught me a lot about the business world. It taught me about finance, 
about managing people and also about being managed myself. And it really also taught me about being accountable for timely outcomes. And they're all, I think, really learned experiences. You can't, you can't get them from a textbook. You've got to go through it and learn it. With respect to my experience in the higher education sector, I've worked at several universities across different countries, and I'm obviously familiar with many, many more because of the accreditation work that I've done. So with respect to the differences that I see, one of the big differences is the pace. Universities really are a lot slower in terms of their space, pace than the corporate world. Now, why is that? I think it's for a number of reasons, but sort of my hypothesis is that in universities, we, we tend to think of things in three-year chunks. So our undergraduate degree is typically three years, our PhD is three years. And I think that then sets the tempo of the organisation. Of course, what we saw last year with the whole pandemic situation is that all universities reacted pretty darn quickly to the situation. So when we need to, we can move fast. So I think there's, I think there's something there. Another observation I have about the differences, Martin, is really... I think universities and many people within universities struggle to understand who the customer is. So is it the student? Is it the government? Is it the employers of our great graduates? Or is it more broadly the society or the communities that we serve? And I think that can be problematic because not understanding who your customer is can cause problems with respect to business development, relevance, and ultimately accountability. Okay, and um, you're giving some pointers there in terms of customer focus and in terms of pace of response to environments that I suppose are a couple of features of what we've been commenting on in the series as regards to culture. And, and therefore, I, I assume that you would um, have a view that the culture in the two, two environments is quite different in terms of how we measure achievement, how we measure capability, success. And, and really the culture in terms of expectation and practice of leaders is often different. How, how else would you describe the differences between the culture of the education world and the business world? You know, it was interesting. I was listening to um, some of the HeadX podcasts and obviously there has been a lot of discussion about culture and strategy and it is interesting. And when we think about how we measure our, our academics, how we reward our academics, you know, the metrics are fairly clear. It's about the quality of teaching it's about the quality and usually the quantity of our research outputs. It's about the amount of external funding which comes in to support that research endeavor. And it's also about service, whether that's service to the university or service to professional bodies or uh, service to the community of practice. So academics that wish to progress through the ranks and ultimately end up as a professor, those criteria, those metrics really become their their primary focus. When you think about making the transition from industry into academia, at the more junior levels, it's not, it's not so difficult, but clearly as you become more senior, the expectation if you were coming from industry into a university would be you, that you'd be at that higher level, at the associate prof or the prof level. Of course, you're not able to cover off on those metrics. You're certainly not going to have the research outputs typically to be able to make that happen. And when I think about my own experiences of traveling backwards and forwards a couple of times, when I reflected, I probably went backwards in terms of my career trajectory when I came back into the university sector. And that is a problem. 
And another potential problem I see that we could solve, maybe, is it's in the leadership space. So I don't think we do all that well in training or equipping our academics to become leaders. And sometimes we see academics move into leadership roles and they really become challenged by that new territory. So they're not prepared for the HR challenges, the difficult conversations, the financial complexities of running a, a department, a school or faculty. And also they're not really prepared for the, the leadership loneliness, that really difficult challenge that we all have. So also what they tend, what tends to happen, of course, you move into a leadership position and you move away from your passion. You move away from what brought you into the university in the first place, and that's teaching and it's research and above all its students. So I'm actually wondering whether we couldn't take the opportunity as a sector to think more broadly about leadership acumen outside of the universities and how we could transition that across. So I'm thinking about opportunities from people from business or industry, even from government or NGOs. So maybe the future, Martin, if I'm being slightly provocative, is maybe we need three pathways, three separate pathways to professorship. So there's the standard academic career pathway, but also maybe we need, we need a leadership pathway to recognise the leadership skills from outside the universities, and also an industry pathway where champions of industry or people with a depth of industry experience could transition across. And another important factor that if we went down that path is that that could help shift the diversity of our academics altogether. Because I'm mindful of the fact that I'm not sure the diversity in our academic ranks really represents or reflects the diversity of our student cohort nor the communities that we serve. I think there's some really interesting points you raise in there, Guy, of three different routes to um, the, the contemporary professor. And I, I might just use that as a bit of a segue to the increasing expectations of, of academics, of universities, and maybe of the professoriate. And that I imagine it's the case in New Zealand and many other parts of the world, it's certainly the case here, that we're getting an increasing emphasis to partnering between universities and industry. We're seeing a push for job-ready graduates. We've got a minister telling us that research commercialization is, is something that we should focus on. I wonder if you can share with us your view, whether it's to support one of those three, three routes to professorship, or just thinking about it in terms of academic life more generally. What's your view of the importance and the best approach to partnering between universities and business? This is one of my favorite topics, but I'll, I'll try not to witter on too, too long. Um, I had the opportunity to spend some time in the US a, a, a while ago, a few years ago, and um, I caught up with Mary Sue Coleman, who was the president at the University of Michigan at the time, and she had a great phrase, which was partner or perish. And really, I believe more now than ever before, I can't say post the pandemic because we're not through it yet, but you know, the world is very, very different. Universities are going to have to partner more than they've ever done before because we have to stay relevant and we have to understand how we can react to a changing world. You asked about job readiness. Now, the vast majority of students these days coming into universities do so on the hope that they're going to get a great job at the end of it. 
So more than ever before, I think universities not only need to provide a great education, but it's more than that. I think we need to provide the skills, the attributes, also the mindset. And right now, I think we've got to provide some resilience for them to be successful when they do go into that world of work. Also, one of my senior colleagues often says that we need to be educating not just the job takers of tomorrow, but actually the job makers of tomorrow. So bringing in more of the entrepreneurial skills into the way in which we educate our students and train our students, I think is important. Um, what we're seeing at, at AUT actually in terms of how our students are engaging is, is a bit of a return to the sort of on-campus career fairs. And it's more from the point of view of companies wishing to get their brand on campus. And another example is in my faculty, we've recently gone through a very, very successful reverse mentoring program with some senior staff from one of Aotearoa New Zealand's most iconic companies. And they wanted to do this for a couple of things. They wanted to get that brand on campus for sure, but they also wanted to demonstrate the culture behind the organization. And interestingly, the other thing they wanted to achieve was actually understand the world from the student's perspective to help them shape their organization going forward. And then the other point you talk about research commercialization, it's really topical. Obviously, I've, I still follow quite closely what's going in, on in Australia. And there's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of talk. So my personal view is that I believe that the intellectual property that's inside universities has to be opened up more successfully for the benefit of our partners. And research that's undertaken, particularly in you know, large parts of universities of technology, really should translate into industry for them to commercialise it, for them to take it forward. And I think what we're seeing, the policy settings in Australia are sort of heading that way, but it's also going to require a shift in the culture. You know, policy and strategy is one thing, but we've got to try and shift the culture. So overall, I think it's difficult for universities to commercialise what's already on their shelves. So it's really back to that partnering with the outside world for clear, strong and mutually beneficial outcomes. Yeah, I, I imagine having spent time at Deakin, you must have learned an awful lot about this in your time there. You know, the common perception is that Deakin was, was always a pioneer among Australian universities and certainly in the early days in embracing digital online and new approaches to markets. Is, is that something that you've been able to take back, bring home, build upon with colleagues back at AUT as well? What, what is the AUT story, Guy? The AUT story is a great story. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful university. It's a great university. Um, we're young and we're agile. Recently, you're probably aware that we've been ranked number 40 again in the Times Higher um, rankings of young universities. But like all universities last year, we had to switch really rapidly to that, that online delivery. And as a university of technology where we're very applied, you know, there were some massive challenges there. However, we did it well, student outcomes were good. And in actual fact, some of the very best student work that I've seen from my faculty was produced last year. So we got some things right. We also took uh, much larger proportions of students with us than we initially perhaps anticipated. Where AUT is right now is that we're changing over our learning management system. That's a big exercise in any university, but 
it's interesting we've got the timing right because there are so many things that we've learned from what happened in 2020 and moving online that we can bring with us into that conversion to a new learning management system. We're also most of the way through a really a once in a generation university-wide curriculum structural reform, which is going to lead to greater student choice, but also better alignment around the jobs of the future. But there are some challenges, you know, it's not, it's not all easy. Um, as I said, as a University of Technology, we are very applied and our students tend to learn through doing, and it's what I refer to as from practice to theory. And how we achieve this through online learning is, is always going to be difficult. But I think where we're going to head to is it's really about delivering a hybrid model and provide students with the very best of both. So the best of the online and the best of the face-to-face. -face. Another challenging thing that I think we all need to be mindful of is that this is around digital equity. So AUT last year during the lockdown, we worked really, really hard to make sure that our students who were locked up at home that didn't have the capability, the digital capability to carry on with their studies were supported. We supplied laptops and modems to make sure that they didn't drop out. And we, as I said, we did take a lot of students with us and had they dropped out, I'm pretty sure many of them wouldn't have come back into the university sector at all. And that would have been a, a, a real shame. Another feature of AUT is really what I refer to as inclusive excellence. And to put that simply, it's about no matter where students come from or where the student is, AUT will meet them there and they'll support them on their journey with us. So we really set out as a university to make sure that we don't leave any students behind. That's a fascinating picture of um, how someone from Deakin has found a, a new place to get excited about in, in, in AUT. And as you said, um, you've, been, you've been really passionate about the subject of, of partnerships between business and industry, and you're now doing that on an international scale with experience from the UK as well. I wonder if, just as we move the, the interview towards a conclusion, I wonder what your message would be in summary to our listeners in Australia, to New Zealand and around the world, really, in terms of how individual academics, but also university leaders and the people that they're seeking to work with in business and governments, how might we all look to a greater commitment to industry partnerships as a way of changing higher education in this new, new normal, as you've described it, for 10 years, a post-pandemic world? And how might those partnerships help lead to better economic recovery and regeneration, do you think? Oh, that's a, that's a big question, Martin. <laughs> I'll, I'll try and answer it. Um, I think often society doesn't really understand the benefits of having universities in our nation. Tend to think of them in silos, that it's around providing an education and some research outputs. But I like the sort of view of them being cornerstones of cities or um, elements in regional parts of our nation where they can add so much to society and so much to the community. And when I think back to, to Deakin, obviously multiple campuses, the campus in Burwood um, was obviously the, the largest campus, but the fact that there was a campus in Geelong and a campus in Warrnambool gave so much richness back to the communities. And I think that often, often we forget about that. 
In terms of recovery, well, let's face it, we've got a lot of smarts locked up in universities. We've got smart academics, we've got smart students. And if we can figure out how better we can partner with industry, that surely has to be a good way forward thinking about economic recovery, Martin. Yeah, let's hope we don't lock them up too much, eh? And um, let's, let's hope we can find some better ways of letting them out and make those connections. So, Guy, you sound like you're really enjoying the challenge of being back in New Zealand in a leadership position. I, w- I wonder if you can, just in closing, perhaps let us know what you think the biggest plus is of being in that, that Kiwi environment right now. And conversely, what, what are you most missing about being a university leader in Australia? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Martin. Um, you know, in many ways, the, the, the two sectors, the sector here and the sector in Australia, are not, not really that different. Um, but professionally, it's been great for me to come back to uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand, and to Tamaki Makaurau, Auckland, because rejoining AUT, what I've seen is that we've got such a dedicated and caring leadership team who individually and collectively really make a, a difference. Um, personally, the bicultural nature of this country is very, very special, and so I'm embracing Mataranga Māori, or what translates roughly into Māori knowledge and understanding. And there's so much for me to be able to learn from our Indigenous people here in New Zealand, which I believe can only shape me to become a better leader in the future. Certainly 2020 was a, was a big challenge, but this has only given me more appetite, I think, to be the best that I can. And I'm often reminded that these jobs, these big leadership jobs that we have, they're not fair weather jobs uh, at all. But I'm an academic leader because I want to make a difference to the lives of young people and to add value to society. And I think that's easier for me to do here in New Zealand because we're a much smaller country and it's about our size and also it's about our connectedness. In terms of what I miss about Australia, well, I probably miss many of the people more than anything. Um, I built a great team around me at Deakin and we did some big things and, you know, I miss those people on a daily basis, really. Yeah, okay. Well, look, I'm sure there'll be some people in, in Deakin listening to this interview when we when we come out, as well as your colleagues and your new colleagues and your resumed colleagues in, in, in Auckland. But on behalf of all of our listeners in Australia, New Zealand, and around the world, um, Guy, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have your insights with your particular experience and your breadth of knowledge across our places. Thank you for joining us on HeadX. Thanks, Martin, and Namahi uh, Nui. Wow, okay. Well, that's interesting, Martin. Yeah, there's some a lot of very interesting thoughts in there, Carl. The, the, the commentary about the pace of universities compared to business, um, the, the, the way that Guy described it as the, the sort of typical three-year cycle that universities work on because of the duration of PhDs and the like and the need to move more quickly than that. I, I can't help thinking we were reflecting on lockdowns before the interview. It's, it's about the time of year when university open days are traditionally held. And I know in Queensland, the first of the cycle of the major civic universities having their open days is coming up this weekend. I can't help thinking that if you're in Melbourne and Sydney right now, you've probably had a year's plans in place for an open day and and Sydney with a bit more notice, but Melbourne with a lot less. You've had to readjust and change those plans very rapidly. Universities just aren't used to doing that sort of thing. Mm. I think what I'm look at what I'm saying from the, from my side of the fence in terms of business and more so in Melbourne than Sydney, but there's generally um, parallel plans for most events. 
So there's the in-person live event and then there's a virtual event or a digital event. Um, and that's generally now becoming, I think, the norm based on the idea that lockdowns can happen or snap lockdowns can happen anyway um, spontaneously. We just don't know when they're coming. So um, the fact that universities aren't used to it, look, you know, big business isn't used to it either, but they've made that adjustment very quickly. Uh, and the pace of change now, uh, I'm fascinated by Melbourne this time, I suppose, going into lockdown uh, without any notice, really, and they they haven't missed a beat. You know, none of none of our meetings, none of our events, none of our timelines, our planning considerations, contingencies. Um, it, it generally hasn't uh, has very little similarity, or it doesn't resemble the initial lockdown in any way. That everyone was concerned, there was heightened anxiety. How are we going to do this? There's a real sense of confidence now, and also some more sort of well groomed, well um, groomed patterns that people fall into to make that adjustment. You do learn through these exercises, don't you? The, the the rate of learning in the initial move online for universities was very dramatic and, and, and very traumatic in many cases. But there were skills learned in that transition that I think have set people up for success in, as you say, having dual plans of, of in attendance and online events. I think everyone will have gone into this open day season with a backup plan of how to do it either alternatively online or in parallel online so it's not that they're lost it's just that we haven't been used to having this continuous on off switch in terms of online learning and on-campus learning events moving between in attendance and and online mode we're we're just getting used to it we're building up the skills to it and it will be very important to going to go forward with those skills you know it's whilst it's new for a lot of organizations uh 10 years ago exactly this year and probably around this time of the year we're working with a large bank that ran a all staff 35,000 person virtual open day essentially. So we had a variety of, uh, you'd log in and there'd be a variety of um, marquees or circus tents that you could go into and you would hear from and interact, you'd hear from in a keynote fashion, the particular leader from that particular, from that area. Um, and then you would have a Q&A with that leader along with anyone else. And that was, that was all curated. So that was 10 years ago. And look, it cost a fortune at the time because it was so difficult to run. Technology wasn't what it is now. But if that was the case 10 years ago, I feel like there's a lot that we could pick up and learn from things like that um, that would help expedite. The, um, the challenge or expedite the solutions for the challenges that we're now faced with. Well, the, I mean, we've made it a common theme in lots of our episodes, Carl, haven't we? How much universities and business have got to learn from each other. And I think that's been so much of the message that, that Guy shared with us there. He, he was talking about the importance of new metrics for academics and for universities and new KPIs that go with that and the new leadership skills that are necessary to be able to be adept in the partnership world and maybe new routes to professorships that will will come to from not only the traditional academic routes that we've always known but as we see with both guys and mark scott's appointment other skills that make people more adept at making these transitions absolutely i i really liked what guy had to say uh in terms of partner or perish now i think you've probably got some background into that that expression i think it isn't it's a interesting take on words or, or phrase. Um, but I like the idea because it does represent what's happening outside of the this particular sector. So, you know, m and is r- really hot. Companies are growing through acquisition. And if they're not acquiring one another or they're not merging, they're finding ways of working together. And then we sort of move into a, a, a field or an area of interest, which we have obviously with HeadX, which is 
how well are organizations aligned and, and can we actually do some predictive intelligence and some feasibility to ensure that we have smooth sailing between both entities? You know, you've got strategic alignment, cultural alignment, ways of working together and then ways of talking together. That's generally the four, the four areas that we, um, we look at to make sure that if we're going to partner, let's do it properly. Well, I think partner or perish is a beautiful um, play on words for the traditional academic mantra of publish or perish. It used to be that the most important thing to ever do as a senior academic to progress the ranks was to have high quality publications born out of well-funded research that were highly cited by others. And look, that's going to continue to be the case for a long time. But the idea that other academics or maybe some of those same academics might be highly skilled in reaching out to building relationships with partners for their own work or for the university more broadly. They're very different sorts of skills. And I think we've seen enough in our conversations this week to, to be able to recognize that the times that we're living in are such that, you know, if, if we want to know who our customers are better and understand what they're looking for, relationships that we might have with our partners will be very key to doing that. And, and we'll need data on that that we haven't traditionally sought. Mm. And I'm interested to know about the things that, you know, we we in business have been talking about for a long time, things like frenemies. You know, is that something that in higher education is common, you know, where you've got friends for certain things and then competitive components for others? Well, I think there's been, there's, where, where there's been a lot of movement in, in the higher education sector is the, the emergence in the edutech sector of different companies that are there providing services for student engagement for student support to universities to to augment and bolster their own in-house efforts to to embrace digital so so, so there's a danger there of do you see these as the disruptors that might eat your breakfast and 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 take take the markets from you or do they, do they become organisations that you partner with and together form combinations of skills that leave you better able to serve your customers? Mm, I'm, sh- I'm sure that ha- that has to be the way. You know, we, we've got a, a couple of, um, you know, each week we get some questions sent to us and people wanting to know more. One of the things that I've noticed over the last few episodes is people saying, provide some advice. You know, what, what do you think we should do? And it's not necessarily coming from the Vice Chancellor's Office, but certainly the university executive are saying, what do you think we should do? You know, we've interviewed, I don't know how many VCs now and, and other leaders in the in the field um, and have spent you know, decades working in this space for you in the sector and for me in business. You know, how would you answer that question? I know I've got my views, but right now, what do you think is important based on um, this concept of partnering to survive? Well, I think partner or perish is a really good um, bit of advice from Guy into this episode for the sector as a whole. And I think in many ways it's meant and intended for individual ac- academics to survive in the new world. But I'd, I'd take it in a slightly um, elevated way and say it's, it's key advice for every single university. They need to think about who their key partnerships are, not just for the education and teaching and learning that they're undertaking and their research, but for their strategic repositioning and for their building of their culture and building of their capability. And I think the, the data that we, we were, I was just referring to there is such that we, we know lots about how our staff are engaged. We know how to undertake climate surveys. We know how to, how, how to undertake pulse surveys of our staff. We, we survey our students to a great extent to know how they're traveling. But how many universities are really on top of what their partner experiences are for them and are able to use that data to avoid perishing? I think my advice would be to 
perhaps draw upon some of the um, metrics that we've been starting to generate from other sectors where you've been doing this for a number of years now, Carl, and better understand your partners and your full range of customers to help you position for a, a very fast-changing world that we're now working in. Mm. Okay, I think that look at that. That's really strong advice. You know, two two points from me. Um, one is, you know, when we've worked with uh, private equity firms or we're doing a, a merger and we're consulting on that, um, there's a lot at stake, and so it's important that you do go through those. You know, the 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 concepts that that are required to give you that sense of security and safety and clarity around what it means to work with another entity. So as I mentioned before, strategic alignment, are we aligned in our strategy? Culturally, are we aligned? Now, I'm going to get back to something you just said there where you said, look, we, we know how to serve our people. Look, I want to throw a little spanner in that one. I don't think I don't think I've ever seen a, a university effectively survey the culture of the organization. I say that because I've rarely seen it in business. It's not something that people run to. They run to engagement surveys or climate surveys, surveys for you, to your point. And they do that because the board or the executive or the, the, executive or the, the council um, are interested in that because the more engaged, the more productive people are with discretionary effort. That's essentially why they do engagement surveys. Culture is actually more important, and yet it's under-indexed. Under it's something that we really need to almost sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, force, force organizations into understanding the value of that before they engage in it. And yet it's the thing that determines performance above everything else. So I'm not sure that's really true that, that higher education um, entities or universities for want of simplification actually know how to do that and do it effectively. No, well, I wouldn't argue with that. I mean, uh, my point was that, that, that we do do lots of surveys of our staff and, and their opinions and the climate in our universities. But yeah, I agree with you. The extent to which we know what the underpinning cultural environment is that's impacting on those and the and the nature of, of their engagement and the nature of their commitment to our organisations, I think, is is poorly understood. And I'd, I'd extend that, um, that analogy to the situation with partners. We often know how many we've got and how, how much money we and, and business we transact with partners. But the, the nature of the cultural fit between partners and the nature of the strategic alignment between our partners and ourselves from multiple sectors is far less well understood. And I think that's a really ripe ground for competitive positioning for universities in the coming weeks. Mm. Look, before we finish, the other two things I think are worth t touching on quickly are even if you have strategic alignment and even if you have complementary culture, the ways of working have now changed. So you have to define the ways of working together and the ways of talking together. And both those areas aren't, uh, aren't nice to haves. They're not in the margin. They're actually very central to the effectiveness and the success of any sort of partnership. So I think in terms of answering those questions from the people that um, that shot us a couple of notes over the last few weeks, that uh, I go back to that in terms of partnership. Firstly, culturally, how, what does the organization look like? And then secondly, in terms of partnership and growth, and I think we are going to find radical change in terms of partners moving forward. How are you assessing strategic alignment, cultural alignment, ways of working together and ways of talking together? Well, I, I, I think that's absolutely right, Carl. And of course, the best way of understanding what your partners and how they're aligned with you would be to speak the same language as them. So having senior leaders within your university who've had some experience of working outside of universities, 
people like Guy, people like Mark Scott at Sydney, it's going to leave you better equipped to be able to master some of those conversations. I agree. And look, that's all we have time for on this episode of Headache. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl.